And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Crude Street, Motel 6, it's your Shine and Gary Kilwolfhine, another episode of the Crude Street Podcast. Mm. This, is, this, is, this is episode 7042, I think. Um, Something like that. Uh, Almost indistinguishable from that number. Sometimes it feels yeah. like that. But, but, but sometimes, to be honest, it feels like we've barely started the discussion. Um, but I was... I was... <laughs> Thinking about things today, I was I was looking at a notice I saw um, of a book which was one of my favorite books many years ago, and I've not reread it in years. Uh, David R. Bunch's Modern, which is uh, going to be, which apparently has never been reprinted uh, mm-hmm. in all the years since the 1970s. It's finally being reprinted, I think, yep. by the New York Press under the aegis of Jeff Vandermeer. Good, good for you, Jeff. And I really. My copy is in storage. It would take me a while to get to it. I thought, this is a book I really want to reread because it struck me as so revolutionary and so radical and so entertaining and so frightening at the time that I wanted to know, is it going to hold up? And then I was thinking, well, that's one of a number of books I'd like to reread. Uh, and yet I've got this pile of new stuff to read. So what I thought we could talk about for a few minutes tonight was we're always talking about the books that we're reading now, which are a couple of months from publication in many cases, the books we're looking forward to in the spring and summer, I started thinking about what are the books you'd like to read if you had, because you're under as much pressure, if not more, than I am. If you had the time to just go back and pick out things that you think would be great rereads, but that you haven't read in a long time, what would those be? I guess for me, I'd go back to books from the 80s. At least on a personal level, the 80s were a golden reading period for me. And so, I mean, I'd go back, I'd probably reread stuff like Tea with the Black Dragon by R.A. McAvoy, which I greatly enjoyed. I'd go back and I'd reread Barry Hewitt's The Bridge of Birds, which I remember fondly as a hilarious novel. Um, very, yeah. yeah which, which won the World, World Fantasy Award one year, I think, or, or you know, shared. I it. believe it did. It was, it was a finalist that may have won the... Maybe it, maybe it did win the Crawford Award. I should know that. If not, it was certainly yeah. close to winning. And, and probably there's a few writers who I feel, you know, have lost their way a little bit later in their careers, at least for me, but who wrote some really favorite books at one time. And so to go back and rediscover those, and I'm particularly thinking about books like Dinner at Deviant's Palace and The Anubis Gate by Tim Powers. I loved that period of his work. Um... I would lo- go back and reread maybe some of the early to mid '90s James Blaylock. Actually, uh, he, you know, I think The Last Coin is a marvelous, marvelous mm. fantasy novel. I'm, I mean, I'm a little bit cautious about some of the work that I read back then because there's always that feeling that you are now a different reader than you were, and so will you still respond to it even if the book itself is absolutely unchanged? Um, mm-hmm. you're, you're not who you were, and maybe that book that you once loved will not resonate for you in the same way that it did back at that time. You know, so that, that's sure a that's passing true. concern. Uh, and I'm sure the fear is that you go back and, and think, my God, what was I thinking? What was wrong with me that I enjoyed this incompetent book? Uh, some things probably don't hold up well. Uh, but there are different ways of not holding up. As a matter of fact, you mentioned uh, Tea with the Black Dragon which I reread a chunk of not more than a couple of years ago because she had another novel out uh, mm-hmm. recently. Uh, and 
and it's, it, it holds up as a fantasy. The, th- the thing that struck me about that was that it's half fantasy and it was half what in the early 80s was cutting-edge computer science. And now it reads like a historical novel. I mean, it, it, it reads like early 80s computing uh, sort of brought up to date, uh, not, not brought up to date at all. The magical parts of it still work. The plot still works. But I really wonder what a, uh, what a uh, reader today, a young reader today, would make of all these references to CPM operating systems and, uh, and disks and modems and that sort of thing. Well, there's not a lot of doubt that a lot, anything that deals with technology that is not so old that it reads like history seems a little bit absurd. I mean, a story that I think, if recollection calls, won the Hugo Award, John Varley's Press Enter, Mm. I think reads very poorly now because it is heavily tied up in the technology of that moment. It came, about, it came out in about 1984-5, something like that. Yeah. And if you read it right then, I think that it reads really well. You read it now, I think it seems very archaic and out of date. What also tends to happen with some of Varley's work is that, mm. you know, and I'm thinking now of like a story like The Pusher, right? Uh, the Pusher comes across as being much creepier on a gender kind of stalking kind of level than I ever noticed it was at the time. I'm sure other more perceptive readers picked up on this stuff. Um, it's the same, you know, when, when I read Heinlein in my teens, I confess uh-huh. I read it quite uncritically. I read it again and again, quite often, but I read mm-hmm. it uncritically. And there's some of his work that holds up very well. And there's some that's just to me very disturbing now you know when i read stories of men in their late 40s into their 50s having physical relationships with young women in their early to mid teens Mm -hmm. that disturbs me a very great deal on all sorts of levels and yet when i was 14 i just glossed over the top of my head i just didn't even pay attention to it now i can't see anything else I think that happens, and I, but I think the reverse can happen too. That a uh, a book which you you had not read in a certain way, reading it in light of of your later experience, uh, makes it seem more relevant. I, I, I come back to the the David R. Bunch stories. I mean, he was a very mm. mysterious writer. Nobody really knows how many stories there are, apparently. But these, you know, this is this far future, very stylized uh, dystopian world where people have have had most of their bodies replaced with metal. The more metal you have in your body, the more prestige. And all they do is conduct wars with giant bombs called grandy wumps and things like this. And it's, the term didn't exist when he was writing these stories and selling them to people like Judith Merrill and Seal Goldsmith back in the 60s. But this is the most, probably uh, one of the most powerful portrayals of what they now call toxic masculinity that exists anywhere in science fiction. And I don't mm. think at the time anybody was reading it that way. But to, today, looking at it today in terms of its attitudes toward gender and specifically its attitudes toward masculinity, looks way ahead of its time, I think. I think because I haven't reread it. That's why I want yeah. to reread it. It would be genuinely interesting. It would be genuinely interesting to, I mean, obviously it's not possible, but to know to how much, to what extent the author intended or was aware or was thinking about their work, their work in that space. Was it something that, right, you know, readers of the day read past, but the author was clearly, you know, intending? Or was it something that the the author at the time wasn't particularly clued in on in themselves? 
I, I don't think there's any way to know that short of doing literary biography. The same issue comes up with Ford Rainer Smith, who I do reread occasionally because it's mostly a short story. And, and he was you know, largely a romance writer. He wrote mm. very conventional romances, sometimes based on 18th century French romances, The Ballad of mm. Lost Camel, for example, or Alpha Alpha Boulevard. Uh, and yet they don't seem to me to be uh, terribly gender-biased. The, the female characters are, are subordinate characters in the society, but then the society also has subordinate characters that have been made out of animals, so a lot of the stuff, again, that seems to have become relevant, or at least in academia in the last 20 or 30 years, like animal studies, now seems very relevant to Cordwainer Smith. I think that writers like that were probably just following their own star completely and not really thinking about the traditions they were writing in, uh, thinking in terms of gender or power or societal structure entirely in their own terms, which is what made them seem such original writers at the time. Do you think that writers who were seen as almost idiosyncratic outsiders in their day appear more interesting and more timeless than we might have expected? You know, writers like, uh, well, like uh, David Bunch, like R.A. Mm-hmm. Lafferty, like Avril Davidson, were all outsiders at the time they were writing. Even Phil Dick was, really, in many uh-huh. ways. And yet they are, their work seems much more timeless than a lot of work that was done at the core, the center, the heart of the genre at the time, in the 40s, 50s, 60s. I think that's true, and, and, and you know more than most of us uh, what it's like to read through a, a bunch of R.A. Lafferty stories all at once. They, they don't seem stale to me. I read a number of them. Uh, but on the other hand, reading a bunch of Ari Lafferty stories is like having 17 straight espressos. There's only so much you can take before you get jittery. <laughs> yeah, the language, yeah. the yeah. language strikes me as original now as it struck me when I read these stories for the very first time. I think that's true. I also think the things that make those stories, that makes the Lafferty stories interesting, that make the Davidson stories interesting, that make books like Lime Killer stand up. Mm-hmm. Uh, has nothing to do with anything that is especially ephemeral. I think a lot of science fiction, particularly more than fantasy, tends to focus on a kind of technological or technical or scientific ephemera, which is interesting mm-hmm. and worthwhile, but carries with it intrinsically this um, datedness that, that, that will fall upon you. You know, it's like most science fiction begins to look somewhat kind of ridiculous, well, for want of a better word, as time goes on, because uh, the very plausibility that it has traded on no, no longer is true. I mean, I suppose as we come to see particularly epic science fiction, particularly space opera, as basically mm-hmm. epic fantasy, maybe that will change. But when you, you put, put a scientific kind of patina on the story, it, you, know, you begin to expect the kind, of, the kind of things to sort of follow through. In our case, you know, social technology particularly is, is such a you know, dominant mm-hmm. part of our, our future. It's very diff- or a present. It's very difficult to imagine a present, a future that does not ha- you know, share that social technology uh, environment. And yet, so much of the pre nineteen ninety five or two thousand science fiction has nothing like that. 
because there was no reason to expect mm-hmm. that it might, it, might, it might happen. It wasn't really predicted in many ways. No, and I think that's one disadvantage that science fiction has compared to feels like, uh, well, like mysteries, for example. Uh, I mean, anybody who wants to understand uh, modern crime fiction will go back and read Elmore Leonard from 30 years ago or go back and read Raymond Chandler and, and, and Dashiell Hammett from 70 years ago. And the stories hold up fine because they're not only inventing a genre, but they're, they're now valuable historical documents. You, you, know, you can't get a better picture of uh, San Francisco in the, in, in the 30s than Dashiell Hammett or Los Angeles in the 40s than Raymond Chandler. Old science fiction doesn't do that for you. Old science fiction gives you a sense of what uh, people living in New York thought the 21st century might be like. But the stories that seem to hold up best as stories are ones that gain their main appeal from something other than the social context. I mean, Asimov's uh, robot stories, for example, mm-hmm. still work pretty well as puzzle stories. They're, they're, they're logical puzzles and, and a kind of uh, Alice in Wonderland, Lewis Carroll mathematical sense they work fine, even though the actual societies that they imagine uh, seem more and more like fantasy worlds. Sure. Let me ask you this. Do you think there's an art to rereading? I, I have not, over the past two decades, reread a lot. I find my, my reading time's not readily available, and I, I feel an obligation to read forward in time rather than back. But do you think that as a fully rounded reader, uh, rereading has an active place, uh, part to play? I think it does. And I, I admire and envy and want to be like uh, people who have recent, who, who spend a fair amount of their time rereading. When Joe Walton went back and looked at all the Hugo nominees, I would love to have been able to do that. Michael Durda frequently would go back and reread uh, thriller writers from, from, from the teens and 20s uh, to see if they uh, work well. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. The idea is not to go back, I think, and retroactively criticize someone's gender or power attitudes, which is very easy to do. There are lots of ways in which, for example, um, the, for example, the Narnia stories, if you look at them from too keenly a contemporary perspective, there are a lot of problematical things in the Narnia stories. Uh, so what I think is interesting is trying to combine um, trying to recapture the magic that you felt when you were first reading it with the problems that you see now and trying to reconcile those two things. Um, and I, mean, I don't know if I know how to do that. Does your reading become more nuanced, do you think? Mm. If you reread? Uh, I think it does. I, mean, I, I, I think you begin to see things that, uh, that you know, again, when I was 12 or 10 or 13 or 14, when I was reading the Narnia books, I wasn't thinking about gender and power roles. I wasn't thinking about uh, his Christianity uh, overwhelming. It was kind of, kind of hard to ignore the Christianity after a while. But uh, I was thinking this is kind of a neat, uh, you know, sweet, innocent uh, fantasy world where uh, you, you, know, you, you, you get to revisit it after centuries have gone by and you become powerful people. It's a kid's fantasy. You go back and look at it now, and it's a kid's fantasy, which also may have been manipulating some of the kid readers at the time. Um, I would think that's problematical, except I go back to a famous quotation from Mayor Jimmy Walker of New York. God knows why these things pop into my mind. 
when somebody was complaining about trying to censor a book, and the book was probably something like, I don't know, um, this is before Lolita. Anyway, his, his, his argument was, I never, I never saw a woman ruined by a book, by which he meant what he probably meant then, which was uh, fairly crude. But by and large, I've not met anybody who was actually ruined by reading uh, insensitively written children's stories from 50 or 100 sure, years ago. Sure. Some, some of the Victorian children's stories are just horrible. I mean, yeah. the, as a matter of fact, part of the appeal of going back and looking at something uh, like The New Mother by Lucy Lane Clifford is that it's a horror story for kids. And I could not imagine reading that as a kid without being utterly terrified by it. And then I thought, well, okay, that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to terrify kids into obedience. That looks like psychological cruelty today, but it's still a pretty powerful story, and it still echoes down through works like um, Neil Gaiman's Coraline and even sure, through sure. Uh, one or two of the stories in Carmen Machado's collection. But you also find, like, if you go back and reread works like, say, Double Star or um, Citizen of the Galaxy by Heinlein, uh-huh. both of which I've reread in the last three to five years, I suppose, that what you ha- well, first of all, you get to look at those books again. I mean, I remember when I read Citizen of the Galaxy, I was completely oblivious to the lack of a female presence in those books. Hmm. When I go back now at least I can see a structure in those stories that appears to justify that situation, whether or not I agree with it or think it's reasonable. And so that's an interesting thing to do. But the other thing I find is that if you go back and read something like that, it then informs the other science fiction or fantasy that you're reading now. There may not be direct uh, antecedents of it, of, of, of what you're reading, but nonetheless, they actually sort of go, oh, well, I've read this sort of thing from that time. Like I'm rereading a book say from the 1950s. I read a book from 2017. Mm. They cast it, it, you know, one another in a different light. So if you could maintain a, you know, sort of a reasonable rereading you know, sort of approach or balance, then I think that's probably healthier than getting completely fixated on what's next, which I, I really think, although it's totally been my life as a reader for the last 20 or 30 years. I don't think it's a very natural or healthy way of reading. Why is it not natural or healthy, though? Well, I don't think books are you know, really are all about, like, what's next. I mean... Oh, uh, I, I think that, yeah, uh, that, that's true. Um, but I mean, I one think, of the things that's... Fast- mm-hmm. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Let's just say, you and I, you more, more than I even, I mean, we're reading for review, we're reading for... Hmm years best, we're reading for what we can say about what we're reading, and that means that it's all about what's next. I mean, anything that happened 24 months ago is not something you're ever going to go back and read. Like, if you didn't read Raven's Stratagem by Yoon Ha Lee last year, the odds are you're mm. never going to read it, right? It's gone because you've moved on and you're reading August, September, October of 2018 now. Um, yeah. And that's not... I mean, I think there's a lot to be said for reading in a way that allows you to follow your natural interest, inquisitiveness, whatever else, and to be able to say, you know, I'm going to take time out and I'm going to reread the collected works of Octavia Butler. I'm going to get all her novels in a pile, just going to read them, right? Why not? There's no reason I shouldn't. This is my my life, my reading. I'm going to do that because I'm interested. But you couldn't do that, Gary, because you've got to read four or five books for review this month. And so I know, that means, and this, uh, you know, 
this is this is the frustration I'm, I'm talking about. Uh, there, are, because obviously, when you're reading new books, you're also thinking back on the traditions that these books represent. Sometimes you don't know whether the particular author is even aware of that tradition. But still, it's a tradition. Time travel stories all have something in common. One of the books I liked a lot last year uh, was River Solomon, An Unkindness of Ghosts, which is echoes in many ways all the way back to Heinlein's universe uh, and Orphans of the Sky and to all the other... I don't really have any idea whether River Solomon was aware of that tradition or not. Uh, they certainly added to it with this novel, but it's not... But it's something that you know strikes me as, as, as being fascinating. Time travel novels are the same way. And then there are writers who, who are deliberately and very consciously aware of their tradition, uh, such as Lavi Tidar, who you know will will use a character name from C.L. Moore in a story quite deliberately, and and have Shamblo as a kind of space vampire in his um, central station uh, stories. I mean, also, so, so there are writers a... who are deliberately evoking the yeah. past. That's true. I think also rereading, it, it, it helps address that problem we were discussing last week about older writers wondering who's reading them. If you reread, then you're more likely to talk about them. And in, in many ways, the most effective way of spreading awareness of the existence of a writer's work is word of mouth. And so, you know, right. if, you, if you turn out and say, well, I just reread such and such, whatever it might be, right? I just reread re Revelation Space or Player of Games or something. Mm. And then someone will go, well, why? Why would you go back and pull out this book that's 20, 30, 40 years old? And you're going, well, because you know, I loved it the day and now I can see that you know, the strengths that I, that I appreciated at the time maybe weren't quite there, but there were these other strengths which were perhaps even greater. And so now I have a really uh, nuanced approach, you know, approach for it. Uh, it's also interesting, you can so easily lose track of how much time is passing as we do this, you know. Mm -hmm. I was looking at uh, Kelly Link's debut collection, Stranger Things Happen, uh, the other day, and that book's 18 years old, and yet it feels like it came out two minutes ago. That's, that's true, and I was thinking the same thing when I was reviewing the Carmen Machado collection, Her Body and Other Parties, mm. the, the, the Kelly Link's collection of, of Mary Rickard's collection, of Jeff Ford's collections, all these feel to me still like new writers. And I suppose in terms of a hundred-year history of the, of, the, of the field, they are new writers. More importantly, they're all writers who are doing new things, whatever materials they're using. And that's, that's what I think puts them in a kind of league with writers that we mentioned earlier, writers like Avram Davidson or, or Ari Lafferty or, 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 or David Bunch, people who are doing completely original things. They've always been out there in the field. The, the other kind of books that I would like to reread are the ones which seemed, I thought, at the time to really change my mind and seemed revolutionary. Um, mm -hmm. The one which I did reread fairly recently, I've, I've reread partly because of putting working with the Library of America stuff, I've reread a lot of uh, Joanna Russ. But I haven't reread things that struck me at the time as being revolutionary, like Sherry Tepper's The Gate to Women's Country or... Um, uh, Pamela Sargent's The Shore of Women, um, probably uh, Pat Murphy's Falling Woman. I remember being very impressed with that. Those I may have, mm -hmm. They may have shaped my idea of what feminist science fiction could be. And then I realized that while Sherry Tepper got a little wonky later in her career, 
is do those early novels still seem as impressive as they seemed to me then? I don't know until I get a chance to reread them. Well, why don't you write a book about Sherry Tepper for the University of Illinois series, Gary? The then you have editor, to go back and look. The editor would never sit still for that. <laughs> but don't you have an in with him, Gary? The, the, the editor doesn't even speak to me. <laughs> sensible, <laughs> sensible fellow. I mean, what I'd love to see actually is somebody write a piece that reconciled or at least looked at the bifurcated halves of her career, you know, the, you know, that the, the attempted to reconcile the earlier, in many ways, I think, much more entertaining novels that she wrote, you know, the Marianne, the, uh, the Marianne trilogy, uh-huh. the True Game trilogy, uh, tr- all those books, with the right. more didactic later political works that probably start around the time of the Gate to Women's Country and proceed through Grass and Raising the Stones and on and on. Uh, particularly right. since, I mean, for, for, as much as I love the early books, I mean, to my mind, her masterwork is Grass. Yes, which I is, agree. Um, which is a book I, I love. Well, again, I, without rereading that and The Gate to Women's Country, her, the, Grass may be her, her finest novel. It may not be her most important novel in terms of the field. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the short woman. Yeah, sorry. Just gonna say, I'm it, glad it, you mentioned the short Yeah, continue. Oh, no, I was just going to say that the, the, the only time I met her, I spent a couple of days with her at a convention here in suburban Chicago. And she was very clear that the reason, this is, this is about the time that uh, some of her later novels uh, were beginning to get didactic in the way you're talking about. And, and she, she said to me that she was doing that quite deliberately, that she started out as a po- polemicist. She started out wanting to write angry essays. You know, she was president, I think, of Planned Parenthood for a while, or at least a regional Planned Parenthood. She felt very strongly about issues of, uh, of, of, of feminism, of nature, of animal rights, of uh, the degradation of the environment. And that was all present in her early novels. She, in her own mind at that point, said that she didn't feel she made the point strongly enough, so she was getting more and more deliberately didactic in the novels. She's, she, she said she didn't write novels to teach lessons, she wrote lessons in the form of novels, and that was very clearly what she thought she was doing, at least during this one weekend she talked to me, which means that maybe her later novels are simply a version of what Heinlein's later novels became. You know, let's, let's more or less take the gloves off, let's not worry too much about plot, and let's just get the points out there as powerfully as we can, have as spokespeople, uh, superior characters, and just, to, from my point, browbeat the audience, browbeat your readers. It may have been very deliberate in both cases that they felt they needed to do that at that point in their careers. That may well be true, particularly with Tepper. Tepper. And in fact, that's entirely consistent with what I've heard. I'm not sure as a reader I care. You know, that's a good I, you know there's this thing where you go, I, I feel the, you know, that obviously a writer can, may, should write whatever they please. But they, you know, they're also attempting to engage with readers. And where I would argue the approach that Tepper laid out fails and fails strongly is that you will not get your message through if people do not want to re- read what you've written. The, the point where Le Guin was so masterful 
is that to the extent mm. that she wanted to get a message through, and I'm not convinced that was ever a primary part, but it was always part of what she was doing. But uh, to the extent that Le Guin was attempting to get messages through, she masterfully wrapped it in wonderful stories. Um, mm. If you get that balance wrong, you get a didactic book that no one wants to read and that falls out of print and that isn't reprinted because nobody has any affection for it even. And, you know, I mean, I think, in fact, I think actually Raising the Stones, uh, sorry, sorry, not Raising the Stones, um, Gate to Women's Country is not a major work from, from Tepper at all. I think that's the first of the didactic novels. It, it, to, to its, I think to its great disadvantage, it came out contemporaneously with Pam Sargent's The Shore of Women, which I think is a much superior book and loved much more, uh, and showed that you could, you know, basically combine you know, powerful storytelling with interesting, engaging politics, which is what she does. So, yeah, I, I, The, the Gate to Women's Country, not, not a book that impressed me much at all. Um, though I'm sure the rest of the world may disagree, and I'm sure the people who, who out there who it, love it. It, 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 it seemed to impress me at the time. I've not reread it in a long time. I mean, when, when you're dealing with a kind of militant opposition between the sexes as portrayed in that, uh, the, the novel which does strike me as more vivid is, is actually not the Pamela Sargent novel, but Susan McKee Charnas's uh, Walk to the End of the World and the three novels that followed that, which became much more complicated uh, and, of course, turned out to be a quartet. But... Um, they were equally passionate, but more, much more critical of power structures in general, uh, it seemed to me, than Tepper had been. But again, we're talking on, uh, on, on memories of, of books we read a long time ago. The example of a, of a writer, my favorite example of a writer who just destroyed his career with didacticism was not a, a science fiction writer at all, but, well, he was, kind of, Philip Wiley, who started back in the 1930s with a Superman novel called Gladiator, which according to at least legend is what inspired Siegel and Schuster to create the actual Superman comic book. Then wrote some mainstream, very satirical novels uh, during the 40s and later uh, decided to write polemics. And he wrote a novel called Tomorrow, I think probably 1950 or 1951, which was a civil defense, a lesson in civil defense, set in a a city bifurcated by a river, which we now know was Kansas City, Kansas and Kansas City, Missouri, one of which has a civil defense system and the other which doesn't, and the atomic war comes, and lesson learned. And then he wrote his sort of gender novel, which is actually one of his better novels, called The Disappearance, which is posits, it's basically a fantasy. All the women yeah. in the world disappear, and all the men in the world disappear from the women. Um, that made some interesting points and had some interesting characters. But by the end of his career, he wrote a frankly awful novel called The End of the Dream, which was this ecological novel. And it was going to have everything he could possibly imagine go wrong with the environment uh, within about 250 pages. And it's just, it's, it's fun to read in the, in, in the way that you look at the opening credits of, of, of disaster movies by Roland Emmerich, this is what happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. But as a novel, it's a disaster. Uh, and yet, from his point of view, as I remember reading interviews with him toward the end of his life, he desperately wanted to make the points that he wanted to make as clearly and unambiguously as possible. The only problem is that nobody in their right mind really wants to read those things anymore. Let me ask you this yeah. Let me ask you this question. Let me ask you this question, though. How important is it that uh, the way that a book is reprinted, 
when you're going for, I mean, what's inspired you to question the whole issue of rereading is the reissue of an old classic book, right? In this case, right. the David Bunch Modern Collection of Stories with the Vandermeer introduction, which we should specify for listeners, will not be out until August of this year. So don't go looking for it right away. Go looking for it in middle, the middle of August, right after Worldcon. That will be the time to look. Just as soon as you get home from Worldcon. Yeah, because the odds are you're not going to stumble across an old paperback copy of it at this point. But how important is it the way that a book is reintroduced to readers? You know, um, the, the the bunch book is coming out from a mainstream press with a introduction mm. from a major writer now who is you know, presenting you know, that book in a really uh, balanced way as a work of, of of interest, which maybe based on pure sales it wouldn't have received. So, what do you think about that? I think it's a very delicate uh, operation, frankly, because uh, when you reintroduce a, the the New York uh, Review books or the, the publishers doing this a few years ago did a collection of uh, Robert Sheckley stories mm. and. And, and, and Sheckley is another writer who I think deserves rereading. I think he was certainly one of the major satirists in the field, um, you know, during the 50s and 60s. And yet, in reintroducing him to an audience which may not have ever heard of him, you more or less are obligated to avoid the nostalgia idea. In other words, here, here, you can't say here are your beloved stories from Robert Sheckley that you read when you were a teenager in the 50s, because those teenagers in the 50s are over the hill now. They're like me. So what you have to do is repackage these stories for a new readership who can recognize that there's something still very original and very fresh about them, very much like the Lafferty Collection, very much like I imagine uh, the Modern Collection will be. Um, the, the, the Avram Davidson Collection that came out maybe 15 years ago now, the Avram Davidson Treasury, clearly was an attempt to repackage the stories, not for people who remembered Avram Davidson, but for people who needed to discover him as a purely literary writer in the first place. And that's why I think it's encouraging that mainstream publishers are picking up some of these titles. Uh, I, I don't think the appeal to nostalgia really works because, you know, there are readers now who are nostalgic for, I've actually heard this on, on Twitter, who are nostalgic for the novel version of Ready Player One. <laughs> that's interesting. So, um, do, do you think that it's, wise to present these reissues of works in overtly an overtly historical manner. Now, I guess what I'm thinking about is, you know, particularly with the short, with short fiction collections of older work that I've encountered, quite often mm. you deal with best ofs, essential stories, uh, treasuries, that kind of thing. And yet I wonder to what extent you, there, there is a benefit in attempting to make them look simpler and perhaps fresher and more contemporary by representing them the way they, they originally were. Now, in this case, I'm thinking about, say, say that the works of uh, James Tiptree Jr., most ah. of the original collections, I believe, and I would have to double-check this, are actually unavailable. The most widely available book of her short fiction is Her Smoke Grows Up Forever, which is, you know, the old Arkham House collection from the right. mid to late 1990s, I guess, that John Clute wrote the introduction for originally, and then was re reissued by... Tachyon, I believe, with a Michael Swanwick introduction, and so on. Yeah. Now, uh, th that's still in print, obviously, but I wonder if people would 
respond better, in fact, to stumbling across, you know, star songs of an old primate, primate or something like that, or 10,000 light years from home, just because they're, they're the books, right? It's in, the difference between a, uh, an encountering, say, the Jaguar Hunter by Lucia Shepard, as opposed to a 200,000-word best-of Lucia Shepard. Oh. I, I don't think that the accidents by which uh, stories got collected originally necessarily are, are, are a definitive way of looking at those stories. I mean, one of the uh, one of the problems with uh, Harlan Ellison, for example, is that there are so many collections that have so many stories reprinted, some of which are classics and some of which aren't. So the original collections of his stories, and I would say probably the same thing was true with the first couple of collections of Tiptree, the first collections of most writers may not be the, 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 the best way to introduce yourself to that writer because those are collections that generally represented the state of that writer's career at that point. That was what collections did back in the mm-hmm. 60s and 70s. Uh, so, so to look at some uh, uh, random, if, if, if you go back to, uh, I, I know Ellison's work well because I wrote a book about him, but there was a collection called I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. Mm-hmm. Um, I would not recommend anybody starting with that collection uh, to, to learn about Harlan Ellison. I would um, much more be likely to send them to some later collection like Death Grid Stories or even some mammoth omnibus thing like the Essential Ellison. But the stories that are put together historically to form a collection aren't necessarily the way I would choose to reintroduce that writer to a modern set of readers. Yeah. I don't know that I'd ever sent any reader to the Essential Ellison. I think it's a fairly flawed book for a variety of reasons and misconceived in my, my, my personal assessment, just to be mm-hmm. completely controversial about it. I think the idea of presenting a portrait of a writer through their strongest and weaker work really isn't necessarily the best idea. And I'm fascinated that you chose Ellison as an example to talk about here, because I think he is one of the more challenging writers to look at in terms of a career nearly complete and trying to get a clear picture of it. Yes. There's such a diversity of work. He had, has had, he's not obviously gone yet, he's had such a commitment to revisiting work, to representing old work that might otherwise have been lost, quite mm-hmm. reasonably in many cases, uh, lost, that the bo- books become hard to assess in their own right stories do. I mean, I, I feel there's sort of a need for someone to pull out all of the collections, reread them all, and then filter them down to a core body of work, whatever it might be, and republish them as one, two, three, however many volumes it takes. Because a lot of the work that's there, you're quite right, deserves to be allowed to fade into the, you know, the mist of time because it was not anything more than journeyman or, or whatever work. You know, not everything that Ellison or anybody writes is was, um, you know, was equally brilliant. Uh, and you know, the, you know the, well, the, the the temptation to revisit stuff. I mean, about in the last five years or so, there was a, a new edition of Deathbird Stories, mm-hmm. which you know I would not encourage anybody to seek out. Not because it's a terrible book, but because Deathbird Stories itself is a classic in Ellison's oeuvre, and he's revisited the contents of the book. He's added extra yeah, material. And I'm not sure. I don't think I agree with that. Yeah. No, the closest we have to the to the book you're talking about probably was Subterraneans. I think it was called The Top of the Volcano, which simply used as a principal uh, award-winning stories, which was not again the best way to choose because they're some of his best stories that never won awards. But at least it's it's looking at 
at, at trying to identify those stories which would be most useful to a uh, to a modern reader. The other the other strategy, which I think is a failed strategy in terms of bringing new readers to a writer, is the multi-volume collected stories, such as we saw uh, with Theodore Sturgeon and have been seeing with, with, with Robert Silverberg. Um, it's great to have all those stories in print for people who are enormous fans of those writers, but I would not send anybody to any one of the 11 or 12 volumes of the collected stories of Sturgeon because they're the best stories are scattered throughout the volumes, uh, and that's not how to introduce somebody to Theodore Sturgeon. I don't think that's the best way to introduce somebody to Robert Silverberg, who has a collection of stories, which or a list of stories which at least rivals that of Ellison or Sturgeon. I think that's true. I mean, Sturgeon has the benefit of having a book like Selected Stories out there, which right. is out from Vintage, I think, if I recall correctly, and is a reasonable run at presenting Sturgeon to a reader uh, now. Ellis, uh, Silverberg is more challenging because, again, vastly prolific writer and wrote yeah. incredibly influential and important works at different points in his career. And I'm not aware of any really single satisfactory summation. There was a, a, a big volume put out through, I think, Subterranean that was a best of which was reissued, right. I think, through iBooks even, maybe it was, before Byron Price sort of disappeared or you know, passed away. So I'm not really sure whether there's an equivalent to that, you know, that sort of the best of sort of thing and what it would be. But um, I, I mean, look, I, I also, like I said, I, I like the original collections being around. I like the idea that, you know, you can pick up a copy of Son of Your Blood or something by Sturgeon and encounter the, yeah. the books the way they were. They were. Although you have to know to do that, and that's the problem in terms of reintroducing writers. Or, or we've actually segued from from rereading into the question of how do you reintroduce writers sure, to a sure. uh -huh. young audience. Uh, but I think that's a, a valid question also. Uh, yes, some of your blood is an absolutely fascinating novella, really. I think, uh, and it's it's available only if you know to look for it. And how do you find out about that? Well, it's nice if. For example, the University of Illinois Press has a book coming out on Sturgeon, which we hope we do, uh, as, as, as a guidebook. Apart from that, you're kind of depending on word of mouth. Most people who uh, know about Sturgeon have heard of More Than Human, and maybe Venus Plus X, because that comes up in a lot of discussions of gender and homophobia in science fiction. Um, and not too much about the short stories, and yet some of the short stories, um, like It, are kind of classic, actually, that's just a classic horror story. It's a beautifully done story mm. um, that uh, I don't know if it's been uh, reprinted widely enough to be familiar to a modern audience at all. I don't know either. I mean, I don't know. I mean, to circle back, I mean, the reason I think that the republishing and reintroducing is, is, is important to the rereading is because books have to be available for people to find them. And there is that difference between being, let's say, published in such a way as to be widely available and simply to be obtainable, you know. Uh, yeah. There are all sorts of books that are obtainable, which you're not going to discover in your average bookstore, you know. I think, for example, um, the Ellison bibliography, almost every single book is available in a POD or ebook in edition, Some form, but, yeah. but, but, but almost none of them are going to be available in an average bookstore in those editions, because they just don't carry them, you know. 
And well, no, and this the, is the, the bookstore remains that. Yeah, sort of the bookstore remains that that primary disease vector, vector or whatever you want to call it. You know, it's like that's where you need the books to be to discover them. I think one of the things, and I, I, I would, I don't spend much time in bookstores anymore because uh, I have too many books coming in the house without my. But there's a Barnes, Barnes and Noble down the street, and I'll go in there every once in a while. And one of the things that distresses me is how few books of more than five or six years vintage are on the shelf at all. Uh, there was uh, there was a period of time, and I'm sounding old now. I realize when a bookstore's science fiction section would have at least a reasonable selection of classics. You could go into most bookstores 20 years ago and expect to see a copy of, let's say, a Canticle for Leibowitz on the shelves. That's no longer the case. Uh, there may be a handful of the, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy will always be there. Uh, Tolkien will always be there. But the the, the books like uh, we're talking about here are almost never going to show up in bookstores anymore. And I'd be surprised, actually, if, uh, uh, if this David Bunch collection, even coming out from a literary press, shows up in too many bookstores. Well, I think that might surprise you. I think they do pretty well with those things. They so well. We'll have to see. I mean, I, I would not be shocked to see the David Bunch collection show up in my local specialty independent bookstores. Not even science fiction specialty, but independent bookstores. That's where I would expect mm-hmm. to see a book like that show up. That's where I hope to think, see the best of Ari Lafferty show up, you know, if it's packaged correctly. Do you, do you think a significant number of readers today actually discover books by going to a physical bookstore? Yes. Yes, I do. I'm, I'm surprised at that. I, I think that the reading environment is much more traditional right now than we would have anticipated it being 10 years ago when digital reading became so dominant, I think, both physically and conceptually. I think that people are going into bookstores. I mean, now, whilst a lot of the, a number of the book chains are not in the ascendant here, I have to say there are a number of bookstores. When I go into them, they are full. When I, when I talk to my daughters and when I talk to their friends about how they get books, when I cast my mind back to the panel that my daughter did in 2014 in London at the Worldcon about how young uh-huh. adults find their books, they find them in bookstores with their friends when they share word of mouth about the things they're interested in. You know, uh, the reason that I think it's a pity for any reader to stop going into a bookstore is you stop finding books you weren't looking for. That's the true value of a bookstore. That's why it's a mistake for any reader to shut themselves off to that experience. You will not stumble across a book you never knew you might be interested in if you don't have that for you. you, you know, th- that's why word mm-hmm. of mouth is so critical. That's why bookstores are... Otherwise, you, know, you might as well pick your, your list of two dozen right writers you think are interesting now, put in advance orders for anything they may put out in the future, and just pack it in because you're never going to read anything new. Well, I think the same argument can be made in favor of, of public libraries. Sure. Uh, that you because I remember going to a public library when I you know couldn't afford to buy books and again the books on either side of the ones you're interested in sometimes are fascinating you just pull books off the shelf that you've never heard of that experience is one I value I think it's not going to do the sort of thing we're talking about in terms of uh, bringing to a new readership uh, some of these books that in, most, many of these classic writers are now available only in ebook formats. Um, 
there's a, you, you can get most of uh, Clifford Senak's work now mm-hmm. in ebook yeah. format. I don't know if you can see, I don't know if you'll ever see one of his books in a bookstore again. Uh, Paul Anderson either. is in ebooks, but I don't know if you'll see him in bookstores. Um, so I, I think you have to do both. I think you have, you can discover some books in bookstores, but if you're interested in really finding some of the sort of undiscovered classics of the field or finding out that some of the classics of the field aren't as classic as we thought, uh, then you're going to have to at some point turn to ebooks because I don't think these things are going to see physical copies again in the foreseeable future. Well, that may be true. Let me ask you this question. We're drifting towards the end of our hour. We're not there yet. Um, mm-hmm. But let me ask you this. If you could see something that you consider to be of interest or value that simply you loved when you were reading, you know, when you were a younger reader, that you could see reintroduced now, and not as a available book, but one that would actually make it into bookstores and get some kind of attention, is there something that you would pick? That's a good question. Um, and there's, it's also a good question of what you mean by a younger reader, because when you get to be my age, a younger reader covers a span of decades, so it could be any number. There are a few novels by Andre Norton. I'd like to find out if they work as well as they did when I was a kid. Uh, Cat's Eye is one of them. Uh, I forget. It's interesting um, that one of them I'm completely forgetting the original title of it because I read it in a retitled Ace paperback, Starman's Son, I think it was. I don't know if those hold up at all. I would like to see if other people today read them as uh, excitedly as I did. One of the classic one-off science fiction novels, I think, from maybe 40-some years ago now, uh, was uh, Cecilia Holland's Floating World, a historical mm-hmm. novelist you know, using her historical uh, imagination to construct a pretty powerful uh, solar system space opera. Uh, I've not reread that in a long time. I'd like new people to look at that and see if, hey, was I right? Was this as good as I thought it was? Um, uh, There are books that strike me as being uh, echoed today in many, many ways that were doing things at the time that seemed odd and even eccentric. Michael Swanwick is a writer who was, uh, who's Iron Dragon's daughter. Seemed like a very eccentric book at the time with its mix of fantasy, classical worlds, science fiction, uh, steampunk. Now, that's almost a convention. I mean, every, everybody's doing that sort of thing. Was that book as uh, influential as it seemed, or did it just happen to stumble across these ideas a few years before anybody else did? Um, who else? Let me think. Uh, I mean, I'll just say just quickly, one, one way you keep these things fresh is by continuing them. I mean, The Iron Dragon's Daughter is about to become the opening volume in a trilogy because, you know, obviously there was a second volume and uh, The Iron Dragon's yeah. Mother is coming out in the first quarter of 2019 from Tor. That's complete. So, so there, you know, no doubt The Iron Dragon's Daughter, which was a, a hugely influential book at the time, uh, will, will maintain its presence for a while longer, and what readers will have the chance to discover it. Uh, one of the things I've been thinking about, just because I've been watching the first couple of episodes of this new TV series based on Dan Simmons' The Terror, is whether Hyperion, which struck me as such a dynamite novel when it came out, still seems quite as uh, innovative as it did. And it's been probably, what, that's probably 30 years since I, I read that one, I guess, as well. 
Yeah, yeah. Actually, that, that's a fascinating example. I'm glad you mentioned it. I, that, that's a book that I too was knocked out by at the time, and I haven't revisited. I mean, like I, I probably reread Hyperion once or twice around the time, and when Fall of Hyperion came out, and Fall of Hyperion mm-hmm. was was great, but it was nowhere near as impactful as Hyperion was. And in, in fact, that was at that time when you know Simmons was into a a streak where it felt like he he could do no wrong. You know, right? It had had the debut novel out. He'd had the big fat vampire novel out. They were all terrific. Everybody's going wild for them. It seemed every book was great, then began to drift off that kind of heat. And to some degree, I mean, I'd have to look back at the bibliography, his bibliography, but I feel like Hyperion was around the time when that was a real peak, and then it began to drift off a little bit after that. And so that now I mean, the books that come out still are hugely popular and sold very well, but they mm-hmm. don't seem to uh, preoccupy the dialogue in the the conversation in the field anymore somewhat because you know he moved off towards main more mainstream kind of stories like the you know, the, the, the horror of the, the terror uh like yeah. the detective books he wrote and so on and so forth but nonetheless not it was a charles darwin book he wrote well not just for charles no dickens book that he wrote not charles darwin charles uh, the rude yeah uh, yeah they were, they were so, all, yeah. you know they're all he essentially has really in many ways has always been a horror writer and the the first novel I read by him, which I remember I was, it was interesting because I was at that time sort of learning criticism from Aldous Budras, and he had read Song of Kali and said, this is one of the scariest books you'll ever read, and it was. Now, looking at it again today, there are some cultural attitudes in it that may seem problematical, but he moves from that to the Summer of Night novel set in central Illinois, where he grew up. Uh, very successful kind of Stephen King-ish novels, and then the Hyperion series, which you're right, the high point was Hyperion. But he moved into science fiction. I think he wrote an Invisible Man novel uh, somewhere mm. along in there, uh, The Hollow Man. Mm. Uh, and and but he he was really occupying science fiction for a few years, and then moved on to uh, the Gothic novels. He sure. wrote a kind of Western novel. He's written the the, the, the Arctic Adventure, obviously, and uh, and the terror. So he was never really uh, centrally committed to science fiction as a writer. Yeah, yeah. I think that's probably fair. I think we should begin to wind up. I think we should move briefly into the my least favorite, probably, but most important section of the Crude Street podcast. It's the mm-hmm. Crude Street co- podcast apologizes section of the podcast. And uh, we are at least one apology for last week's uh, podcast, and so we'd like to apologize to Yun Ha Lee. We made a mistake in discussion when, in the use of gender pronouns, and should have been using he, him, rather than she, her. That was a significant error on our behalf. We both know better than that, and so whilst I've been, we've been in touch with Yun to apologize directly, we would like to make note of that correction, and we would like to you know, pass it on to everybody as well that we are, you know, we apologize. I also want to make note that we did receive a comment from the indefatigable cat Sparks about our conversation last week. I had mm-hmm. dragged her in without any reference uh, to, you know, to her to our discussion on science fiction being horror. And of course, as it turns out, you know, she and I had had a discussion in a bar about this, and her full, you know, discussion of it was much more nuanced than I presented it as. <laughs> so I'd just like to acknowledge that her, her her points of discussion were more nuanced, 
and you know, should you you want to, there is a there's a comment from her out on, on the episode that came out where she points out that actually, you know, like I actually am a buffhead and didn't really allow the fact that, you know, she was really saying that you can interpret contemporary SF uh, as a kind of horror because stories mostly seem to be perceptions of what we fear and about our societies and where they are and where it's heading. So kind of, you know, that kind of thing. So my apologies to Kat if we actually, or if I actually, in fairness, if I misrepresented her, the complexity of her position. So, yeah. It's always difficult to represent other people's uh, critical and theoretical positions because they're almost always more nuanced than, 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 we'll, uh, than we'll pick up on. So I'm sure that I've done the same thing many times. Uh, for many people who, fortunately enough, don't listen to the podcast that they didn't catch me. <laughs> I should also say, sort of, it's a bit of a relief this weekend. It appears to be the No Awards weekend, Gary. I'm not aware of any short lists or lists of winners being released over the you know the weekend of sort of the seventh and eighth of April. So we can have a little bit of a relax about that. I'm sure we will see Nebula results fairly soon. Fairly soon, um, that'll be, and that will be interesting. And then we'll begin to move in. I, I think. World fantasy nominations are open for a while longer. I think you still can vote, I think, for the Locus Awards at the moment. Um, so, yeah, uh, lots and lots and lots of stuff out there in the world for people to pay attention to uh, and giving you pointers to read. I'm going to leave it with this. I'm probably going to sit down this weekend. I've been feeling a little under the weather. I've got, I'm, run, I'm running my children around doing a million things. Uh-huh. But I'm going to follow a recommendation of Colleen Mondor, who reviews for our magazine, Locus. And I'm going to read Holly Black's The Cruel Prince, which looks like pretty terrific comfort reading to me. What about you, G? What are you going to read? That sounds like fun. I am probably going to read uh, a novella or a short novel by Peter Watts called The Freeze Frame Revolution, which seems to have a interesting plot that deals with very, very far future in characters aboard a, apparently a, some kind of a, a, a spaceship which is circling the galaxy, but they're only awake one day out of a million. So as they move further and further through the galaxy, they're moving further back in time relative to the Earth, of course. And how he can handle this in uh, less than a couple of hundred pages is fascinating. But Peter Watts has always struck me as being a, a fascinating and fairly committed hard SF writer who uh, who works his details out with impressive precision. He does indeed. I mean, one of the challenges with edit- editing uh, Peter Watts is that he's always so much smarter than I am, so it's hard sometimes to argue. <laughs> but uh, I, I also have a copy of The Freeze Frame Revolution. I'm looking forward to reading it. And actually, the other thing I'm going to read this week, Gary, as soon as I've read The Cruel Prince, sitting on my Kindle right now, um, is a copy of Blackfish City by Sam J. Miller, which is about to hit stores or has hit stores or whatever. So I'm going to be reading that in advance of a conversation with him, I hope. And it all should be really, really interesting and good. So, yeah, I think we're got a lot on. I want a lot going on. Mm. And, and yeah. yeah, not too much going on, but a lot. So a lot. Was, uh, we should look forward to talking to, to, to Sam. Okay. Well, on that, uh, I think that's 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 an episode. That's a wrap. That's episode three hundred and twenty-eight. So it's a it's a wrap, and, and 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 once again, weekly now for three weeks in a row, it's been the Cood Street Podcast. 
an occasional missive from the from from distant clients. <laughs> okay. Well, I shall talk to you next week. Enjoy right. Peter Watts, and yeah. Until then. All right. We'll be. All right. Great. So long. Okay. Bye. <laughs>